0: For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is The People of God. Romans chapter 9, verses 25 through 29 in particular. This is the people of God, part one. We'll look at this text beginning this week. We'll finish up, uh, if the Lord allows, in our next study together. The people of God, Romans chapter 9, verses 25 through 29. Through our study of Romans chapter 9 together to this point, Paul has led us conclusively to the point that God acts freely for the glory of his own name in the salvation of undeserving sinners. That's Paul's point. God acts freely. God acts with divine sovereignty in the for the glory of his own name in the salvation of undeserving sinners. God is not unrighteous in his dealings with sinful men when he does so. In fact, God upholds And vindicates his righteousness against the charges of arrogant and insolent men when he does so. Through the sacrificial and substitutionary death of his own son, God preserves his sovereign freedom in showing mercy to whomever he wills to show mercy, being both just and the justifier of the one who has faith alone in Christ alone. And at the same time, do the manifold offense of the sinner's rebellion against him. God upholds his sovereign freedom in judicially hardening those whom he wills to harden, being both just and blameless in his judgments over those who have sinned against him. Verse 18, therefore, in light of these things, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens acting in sovereign freedom for the glory of his own name, having declared the end from the beginning, before they were born, before they had done anything good or evil, without respect to any natural or inherent or foreseen distinction between them, God exercises the divine prerogative in fashioning from the same lump of fallen humanity one vessel of mercy prepared beforehand for glory and another vessel of wrath prepared beforehand for eternal ruin. A prerogative that is God's alone. A prerogative that is consistent with what it means to be God. Now, God does not exercise that prerogative arbitrarily or on a whim. God exercises that free and sovereign prerogative with intentionality. This, Paul says, God desires to do. He desires to exercise that prerogative, as it were, in fulfillment of a gracious Purpose And in fulfillment of that gracious purpose, God determines to endure those objects of his wrath. That's verse 22. He puts up with them, as it were. He restrains the full exercise of his righteous retribution against those vessels of wrath deserving of his justice. And even among those who have so grievously... Sin against him, God demonstrates astonishing forbearance, extraordinary patience, enduring with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction. God said to the Pharaoh in Exodus chapter nine, I could have stretched out my hand against you, Pharaoh, you and your people stretched out my hand with a pestilence and cut you off from the face of the earth. God says that to the Pharaoh, I could have cut you off from the earth. But indeed, God says, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may manifest my power in you and that my name, God says, may be declared in all the earth. In other words, God enduring sinners to display the righteous revelation of his wrath, God enduring sinners to display the just Outpouring of his power upon them in judgment. All of that now, to what end? To what end? Verse 23. So that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. God, think with me now. God employs his wrath, so to speak, in the service of his great mercy so that against the terrifying backdrop of his just and righteous wrath, he might more vividly display the infinite and inexhaustible riches of his own glory poured out in the salvation of undeserving sinners. All of that magnifies, magnifies the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 2, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus to the praise of the glory of his grace. How is it, brother and sister, when you you came to the Lord Jesus Christ, how was it that you saw the value, the preciousness, the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ? You saw that in the context of your own sin against him, did you not? We see Christ high and lifted up in part, brothers and sisters, because we are low and deserving of his wrath. Do you see? It's against that black backdrop that the diamond of our salvation, the diamond of God's grace, the diamond of God's mercy shines in all of its brilliance. Do you see? To the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his mercy, that he is worthy of that kind of worship from a redeemed humanity, a humanity that sees Christ as precious. Do you see? He didn't come to save the righteous, but he calls sinners To repentance. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are sick have need of a physician. Amen? Now, in the immediate context, Paul has been concerned primarily with explaining the apostasy and the unbelief of Israel. Paul says they are not all Israel who are of Israel. That's the reason that uh, Israel is largely unbelieving and apostate, because they're not true Israel. Do you see Paul's point? Right? Nor, Paul says, are they all children because they are the physical descendants or the seed of Abraham. Those who are the children of the flesh, Paul says, these are not the children of God. Stated very plainly, stated very clearly. But rather, Paul goes on to explain, the children of God, the children of God, the children who inherit the promises made to Abraham are those who by God's free and sovereign election of grace are counted by God as the seed. And they are counted as the seed through faith in God's own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in this way that Paul explains how, from the same lump, that same lump of clay that is the nation of Israel, for example, it's in this way that Paul explains how the master potter From that lump of clay, which is Israel, fashions for himself one as a vessel of mercy for honor and another he fashions as a vessel of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction. That's initially Paul's point. Is it out of Israel, not out of the nations, but out of Israel, there are those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and there are those who are not. How does Paul explain that? They are not all Israel who are of Israel. right? And God counts those who are children of the promise as the seed, those who put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has said in chapter 11, verse 7, Israel has not obtained what it seeks. He's speaking of the nation of Israel there. Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. Drawing a distinction between the elect, elect Jews and elect Gentiles, and the nation of Israel. The rest, Paul says, the rest of unelect Israel, the rest of the Jews, were blinded. The Gentiles, the rest of the Gentiles, also blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. God shows compassion on whom he wills to show compassion, and whom he wills, he hardens. However, Paul's concern in this text, in the text that's been under our consideration for some weeks now, Paul's concern in this text is not limited to the nation of Israel. It's not limited to Israel, as we've seen. The potter has power, right, authority over all the clay from one lump consisting of all of fallen humanity to make one vessel for honor and another vessel for dishonor. And just as God, according to the election of grace, has taken some from among the nation of Israel to fashion them as vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory, God does likewise in the nations. He has done likewise from among the nations. Verse 24, even us whom he has called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. It's a wondrous reality to God's saving plans and purposes. Brothers and sisters, for us. This, This includes us. This should be of particular interest to you and I, Gentiles, and how we fit into God's redemptive plans and purposes. Paul's explaining that now to us in the text. Now this assertion would have been absolutely shocking to the Jews. If there were a Jewish listener in Paul's audience, this, this would have astonished them that Paul would make this kind of statement, that God's election of a people for the sake of his own name included the Gentiles. <laughs> that the Gentiles, the Gentiles would partake of the promises made to their father. Abraham. To the Jews, it's like having a family reunion, and that guy that you don't even know who's saying that he's your cousin shows up uninvited, right? It's like, who is that guy? And what is he doing here, right? That's, To a, Paul's Jewish audience, it was a little like that. They would have been astonished at Paul's statements. They were astonished at the fact that God would show mercy to the nations. Namely, verse 24, that God would show mercy to the us whom he has called. Now, remember who Paul is speaking to. He's speaking to the church at Rome, okay? Referring to the us, whom God has called in verse 24 should remind us of those whom God has called in Romans chapter 8 verse 30 if you look back just basically same page in your bible most likely in other words the us whom God has called in Romans chapter 8 verse 30 are those whom God has predestined to be conformed into the image of his son those called are those who were foreloved by God and predestined those whom he predestined these he also called to himself Ineffectual grace and those whom he called to himself in time, he also justifies them and glorifies them. This is, these are the called out ones. This is the church of the living God. If you remember that word for called is a way of referring to those whom God has effectually called to himself in much the same way that Jesus Christ called Lazarus out of the tomb, called Lazarus from death to life. God calls wicked Undeserving sinners who were dead in sins and trespasses, and He calls them to life, new life in Jesus Christ. He gives them a new heart. He indwells them with His Spirit. He causes them by His Spirit to walk in His statutes. God brings them out of darkness and into His marvelous light, out of death and into life, eternal life. Do you see? God calls them. We, brothers and sisters, are the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. We are the assembly of the called ones. And so having referred to us in verse 24 as the church, the called out ones, the called ones, he then identifies the us whom God has called, including the church at Rome in context, and the church in Oviedo by way of application, he identifies that united Us, as consisting not only of Jews, but also of Gentiles. An amazing thought to his Jewish audience. The church at Rome had both. Both were in the church at Rome as converted believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Elect Jews and elect Gentiles. Both, both are vessels of mercy, which God had prepared beforehand. The Gentiles, Paul? Yes, the Gentiles, They are called and therefore they are a predestined group, one group, a single unified group consisting of elect Jews and elect Gentiles. That's Paul's point in the passage. Verse 24, even us, brothers and sisters, whom he called not only of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. Harkening back to verse 6, to the true Israel of God, Hearkening back to verse six, the true children of the promise, the true descendants of Abraham in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. And this is the way brothers and sisters that they are blessed. This theology is not some figment in Paul's imagination. Paul didn't make this up as he was going along. This is a part of the, the, the inscripturated evidence that God had planned all along to save the Gentiles out of the, the nations a people for his own name. This is consistent with the repeated testimony of the Old Testament scriptures. And in proof of this, Paul quotes from two Old Testament prophets to prove his point, Prophet Hosea and the Prophet Isaiah. As he says also in Hosea, verse 25, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who is not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Now, it's here in verse 25 and 26 that Paul now references two passages from the, the prophecy of Hosea to prove his point that God, for the sake of his own name, is fashioning vessels of mercy from among the Gentiles. That's interesting. When we just read through Romans together, right? When we just read through Romans, we're looking at these, this text, verses 25 and 26, from our perspective on this side of the cross, And so we look at that quote, and we sort of understand what's going on there, what Paul is asserting from that text. He's talking about us, talking about the Gentiles. But Paul is very interesting in the way that he does this. He refers to a text that's talking about the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Turn with me to Hosea 1, and let's look at how Paul handles this Old Testament text. Paul is going to teach us to interpret Hosea correctly. (laughs) Now, Hosea is a fascinating book. In the prophecy of Hosea, God God is describing the relationship of Israel to himself. That's what's going on in the book of Hosea. He describes the relationship between Israel and Yahweh. And he does so by creating a living parable in the life and experience of Hosea the prophet himself. Now remember, again, when Paul quotes an Old Testament passage... It's just not the words of the quote that we need to be concerned with. It's all the context that we need to be concerned with. Paul is bringing the entire context of the passage to bear upon his point. So it's not simply the words. It's the context of the quote that helps us understand what's going on. Verse 2, Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry, Hosea, and children of harlotry. A harlot is a prostitute. So essentially, Hosea is going to choose a wife from among prostitutes. And he's going to have children, essentially, of harlotry or prostitution. Why does God ask Hosea to do this, command Hosea to do this? Because, verse 2, the land, it's another way of saying Israel, the nation, has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. That's often in the Old Testament scriptures that idolatrous and unfaithful Israel is described in scripture as a brazen harlot. In our study of revelation on Sunday evenings, we'll see, this, we'll see the idolatrous nations of this world described as the great whore of Babylon. She's described as a brazen harlot and described as a brazen harlot because of her idolatry. The people of Israel specifically now referring to the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, the people of Israel have abandoned their covenant relationship to the Lord and they have plunged themselves into idolatry, which God describes as spiritual adultery or spiritual harlotry. So Hosea is to play out, if you will, this living parable before the eyes of all Israel depicting Israel's relationship to God. Verse 3, Hosea obeys. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now the name Gomer is significant in our text. The name Gomer means the end. The end. Hosea has taken for himself a wife of harlotry, and her name is the end. Okay? Verse 4. Then, concerning Hosea's son, the Lord said to Hosea, call his name Jezreel. For in a little while, I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day, in the day of that judgment, that I will break the bow of Israel, break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now these names again are significant. The name Jezreel means God sows. God sows. God says to call his son's name Jezreel. Because God is going to sow a great judgment in Israel. One, he's going to visit the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. That's verse 4. In other words, if you remember that story from the Old Testament, the bloody purge carried out by Jehu against Ahab and against that wicked woman Jezebel, if you remember that story, in the valley of Jezreel, That bloody purge is now going to be brought against the house of Jehu itself. It's going to be brought against the ruling house of Israel. In other words, God is going to bring an end to Israel. That's what he's prophesying here. Two, he's going to bring an end to their house. God will break the bow of Israel, break their ability to fight. In other words, break their ability to defend themselves. In the valley of Jezreel, in the valley where God sows his judgment, the Assyrians would defeat the Northern Kingdom and Israel would go into exile. It's exactly what took place. If you remember that purge of Jehu, that's where uh, in the account of that bloody, the casting down of that rebellion and the just the the um, destruction of Ahab's house. That's where uh, Jezebel sees Jehu coming from afar, and so she puts makeup on her face, she fixes her hair, and she leans out the window. Hey Jehu, you know. <laughs> And Jehu tells them to throw her out the window. And Jehu they throw her out the window. She lands on the pavement below her blood. And in fulfillment of prophecy, God had said that it would happen. And it came to pass. The dogs licked up the blood of Jezebel on that pavement, ate her corpse. Nothing was left of her. I think it was but the palms of her hands, soles of her feet. And then she became refuse in the field. That's the judgment that God has in mind for idolaters. That's the judgment now, that purge of Jehu. That's the judgment that essentially God is declaring against Israel for having forsaken her covenant with the Lord and having plunged herself into idolatry. That's what's going on here, okay? Verse 6, Hosea is picturing this in his marriage to Gomer and in the children that they're having. Name him Jezreel. Verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, call her name Lo-Ruhamah. That means no mercy. Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. So Hosea is to marry the epitome of an unfaithful woman. Her name means the end. With Hosea's first son, God intends to put an end to the house of Israel. With Hosea's first daughter, God intends to put an end to the mercy that he has shown them to this point. Yet, verse 7, yet, I will have mercy on the house of Judah. will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. The fall of Judah will come later, okay, for the same, essentially the same reasons. Now, verse 8. When she had weaned lo she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, call his name Lo-Ami. That is, not my people. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. God is essentially casting off Israel. God is essentially um, ending the covenant relationship that he has with them. Prophesying that judgment that is to come. And then he says this in verse 10 Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. That is an awesome statement. An awesome statement. An awesome statement of God's faithfulness, of God's mercy, God's grace, God's restoration. You recognize in that, that statement the language of Abraham, God's promises to Abraham? You should. Right, God makes that promise to Abraham. And the the question that we're left with at the end of verse 10 is, how is that going to be accomplished? God has just pronounced this devastating judgment upon Israel. Not my people, no mercy. I'm going to destroy the house of Israel, utterly destroy them, and yet the number of the children of Israel will be as the sand of the sea. When Abraham had not withheld his only son, Isaac, but took him up the mountain in obedience to the Lord to sacrifice them there, sacrifice him there to the Lord as God had commanded. God said in Genesis chapter 22, verse 16, listen to this. By myself, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, Blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. Your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, Abraham, look at faithless Israel. How is this going to be accomplished? God is going to pull out this, pour out this judgment upon them. They've plunged themselves into idolatry. They've forsaken God as a brazen harlot. What's to be done about the promise that has been made to Abraham? How will this be fulfilled? Do you see? So the Lord recalls to mind his promises to Abraham, which includes the blessings of God upon just the Jews? No. The promise to Abraham includes the promise of blessings upon the nations. All the families of the earth would be blessed in believing Abraham. Then we see Paul's quote then in Hosea chapter one, verse 10, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people there. It shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel, all of Israel together, Northern and Southern kingdom together shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head and they shall come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now, what does Jezreel mean? It means God sows. Initially in the Valley of Jezreel, God sows judgment. But in this, the Valley of Jezreel, what is God sowing? God is sowing a restored people. God is sowing his mercy and his grace. God is sowing a great nation from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to worship and to praise his son, their one head, our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is that a prophecy of? That's a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They will be one people, not two, church in Israel. There will be one people, and they will appoint for themselves one head. Great will be the day of God's mercy in the valley of his sowing, in the valley of Jezreel. The northern kingdom of Israel plunged itself into brazen harlotry, brazen adultery against God. They prostituted themselves with the false gods of this world. Hosea is to take for himself then a wife representative of that harlotry whose very name signifies the end, the utter end of the northern kingdom. Northern kingdom, by the way, has never come back, never been restored from Assyria. And in that marriage from Hosea to Gomer, God has pronounced the great judgment against them. God's verdict against their idolatry is announced, if you will, in the names of Hosea's children. Jezreel, God will put an end to the house of Israel. Lo-Ruhamah, God will put an end to his mercy. Lo-Ami, God will put an end to the covenant relationship between them. For you are not my people, God says, and I will not be your God. And yet... For God's a verdict against the nation, for these very judgments that will shortly come to pass in the history of Israel, the hands of the Assyrians, God promises, verse 10, the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. That promise that God made to Abraham remains. You see, God has not forsaken his promise to Abraham. God has not forsaken the covenant that he made with their fathers. God is faithful to his word, and that promise remains despite, if you will, Israel's harlotry. And look at chapter two, Hosea chapter two, verse one. Then what is Hosea to do? Say to your brethren, my people, <laughs> and to your sisters, Mercy is shown. In that day, you will say, My people, and mercy is shown. In the place of Jezreel, where God sows his mercy, lo Ruhama, no mercy, becomes Ruhama, the one who has obtained mercy. And lo Ami, meaning not my people, becomes Ami, my people, sons of the living God. You see, God changes their name. Do you see? God says of this prophesied restoration, drop down to verse 19. God says of this prophesied restoration, verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me. She will become his bride, as it were. He will wed her forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. That sounds familiar to you. It should. That's a new covenant promise. Everyone, from the least of them to the the greatest of them, will know the Lord. No one's going to have to ask his neighbor, teach me, right? No one's going to have to be taught. In other words, we're all going to be indwelt by his spirit. And everyone who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will know the Lord the Lord, by his spirit. Verse 21, it shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil. Again, this is a prophecy of God's blessing upon the kingdom in the eternal state, right? There's going to be blessing. There's going to be a restoration. And they shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. In that day, all of Israel, all of Israel, will be gathered together as one people and they will have for themselves one head. What is this a prophecy of? It's a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ as head over his body the church made up of elect Jews and elect Gentiles, all the people of God together. Look at chapter 3. Hosea we'll chapter 3, look there at verse 4. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince. Without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim, without the trappings of their worship, as it were. Verse 5, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Who have we been taught is David their king? David's been dead a long time now. Generations. David's dead. He's in the ground. David's buried. Who is this Davidic king? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our head. The children of Israel shall return. They're going to seek the Lord, their God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Davidic king in the latter days. The latter days are a reference to the days of the coming Messiah. When you see that phrase, That's a reference to the days of the Messiah, the age in which we live, brothers and sisters, the church age, the days of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this symbolized in the record of Hosea's own marriage to Gomer long before these events ever took place and on the pages of scripture in the prophecy of Hosea, right? All of this recorded, all of Israel gathered together. What has Paul been teaching us about the identity of Israel? They're not all Israel who are of Israel. The children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Who are true Israel? Who are the true circumcision? Those who've been circumcised of heart. The one who is a Jew is a Jew inwardly. right? Romans chapter 2. What has Paul been teaching us about true Israel? True Israel are those whom God has saved, those whom he has called, effectually called to himself, those whom God has indwelled with his spirit, elect Jews and elect Gentiles in one body under their head, the Lord Jesus Christ, all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you do not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then Paul says, let him be accursed. Those who do not love the Lord Christ, let them be damned. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the head of a glorious people redeemed through his own shed blood on the cross. We're not two people, brothers and sisters. We are one people under the headship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 11. Listen to this from Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 10 or chapter 11, verse 10. Listen, in that day, in the latter days, in those days of the Messiah, in that day when the Lord Jesus Christ will come, in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, Who is David's father, Jesse? Who shall stand as a banner to the people? For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. That doctrine of the remnant is going to be very important in the next text section of text we're going to consider. To recover the remnant, right? what is the identity of that remnant? Who are the remnant? He's going to recover them from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. And he will set up a banner for the nations, right? He's going to recover them and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and to gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. God is gathering to himself a remnant. A calling a people out for his own name out from among certainly the Jews, but a people for his own name out from among the Gentiles. The Lord God said to his only begotten son, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6 Behold, he says to the Lord Jesus Christ, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to reserve the to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Behold, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. What a glorious plan of salvation. You know, it's not arbitrary that the Gentiles would be included. These things are not arbitrary. They're not like, it's not plan B that we got included. This is God's plan all Along, do you see, the scriptures foreseeing that God would save the Gentiles, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's just God's wondrous, infinitely wise and marvelous plan of salvation. And brothers and sisters, we're undeserving, wretched sinners. We get counted in on that. How unworthy are you am I to be included in this? God is amazing. Amen. His plans are amazing. What Jesus Christ has done is amazing. Look at Amos chapter 9 with me. Amos chapter 9. And again, we're further considering these marvelous plans of God for the salvation of the Gentiles and the restoration of a remnant. And in Amos chapter 9, Amos also alludes to this. This is all over the Old Testament. Verse 8. Amos 9, verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. He's going to leave to himself a remnant. For surely I will command... And I will sift the house of Israel among the nations as grain is sifted in a sieve. They're sent off into the nations, so to speak, um, in the Assyrian exile. They're taken captive by Assyria and sent into exile. Yet, verse 9, not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. Not the chaff, but the grain. The chaff is good for nothing but to be bundled up and thrown into the fire. The grain God takes into His storehouse; not a, not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. No one that God has elected to Himself, no one that God has predestined, no one that God has not that God has called to Himself as a child of promise, not one will be lost. Not one. A remnant. The remnant shall be, will be saved. Verse 10, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say the calamity shall not overtake us or confront us. Verse 11, but on that day, on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David. I'm going to raise up the throne of David. How does he do that? That tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. God says, I'm going to repair its damages. Verse 11, I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. How does he do that? He does that through the Davidic King, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will sit upon the Davidic throne for eternity. On that day, I will raise up that tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. Verse 12, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Now, that's a prophecy of God restoring a people to his name, from elect Jews and elect Gentiles. Turn with me to Acts 15. Acts 15. James quotes this very passage at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. Peter explains at the council that God acknowledged the salvation of the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he had done with them, the Jews. The Gentiles received the spirit in the same way that Peter had received the spirit. So Peter said, listen, what was I to do? They received the spirit in the same way that we did. Were we going to deny that God had also granted the Gentiles repentance that leads to life? Were we going to deny them baptism when God attested to their salvation by giving them the spirit, the same way that he did to us. Peter's explaining this to the council that God has made no distinction between elect Jews and elect Gentiles. God has made no distinction between elect Jews and elect Gentiles, giving them both the spirit as a guarantee of their inheritance. They had both been saved through faith alone in Christ alone. So upon this news, upon this explanation, verse 13, Acts 15, verse 13, after they had become silent, (laughs) there was nothing they could say. James answered then saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Verse 16, after this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ has been initiated. It's been inaugurated. Jesus Christ is ruling from the throne over his kingdom. That kingdom has not been fully consummated. There is an already and a not yet aspect of the kingdom. But this kingdom, the tabernacle, has been raised up. Its ruins rebuilt. God is setting it up. Verse 17, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Those from the nations what will God's elect do during this time? They're going to seek the Lord Jesus Christ. God is going to effectually call them. The general call of the gospel goes out to all, and there are many who reject it. There are many who re- who resist the Lord. But that effectual call of God upon the heart of a sinner... Through that effectual call, God draws them to himself in grace, opens their eyes that they can see their own sinfulness, see the value of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they turn in faith to Christ and trust him alone for salvation. God effectually calls them to himself. And that tabernacle, the tabernacle, if you will, of the Davidic throne, our Lord Jesus Christ is raised up so that the rest of mankind, so that the nations during this time of the church, the nations would seek the Lord. Even verse 17, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. And then James adds this in verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. This is not something that Paul or James or Peter made up as they were going along. All these Gentiles coming, let's figure out how do we, how do we explain this from the bottom. No. Known from eternity are all his works. Now think with me for a moment. This prophecy, the prophecy of Hosea. Okay, the prophecy of Hosea, in its original context, the prophecy of Hosea pertains to the northern kingdom of Israel in its context. They had come under the judgment of God due to their idolatry. The northern kingdom would be cast out, would be exiled. They would find themselves to be in and among the Gentile nations that surrounded them, essentially like the Gentile nations around them, without mercy, without God in this world. However, and yet, in God's reference to the restoration of his people, in God's promise to show mercy to a people who are not his people, do you not also see in the prophecy of Hosea, in the prophecy of Isaiah, in the prophecy of Amos, in the testimony of the New Testament, do you not also see a reference there to God's redemptive purposes for the Gentiles? It's not just that nothing was said about it in the Old Testament, and now we take those texts, we take them out of their context, and we say, oh, no, 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 it it really didn't mean that. It really means this. That's not what's going on here. All along... This has been God's plan. It's something we're going to look at briefly tonight in our study of Revelation. It's something that has been called the mystery of God. That mystery, hidden as it were, shrouded in ages past, now made manifest at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see in it, in the Old Testament, a reference to God's redemptive purposes for the Gentiles? All the prophets certainly do. Peter certainly does. James certainly does. Paul certainly does. Romans chapter 9, verse 23, God plans to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Just as he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people in that valley of God's sowing. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. God has called out for himself vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory, not only from among the Jews, but from among the Gentiles as well. And in believing Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. One people, one body, one head. What is this latter day group of people to whom has Paul applied the words of the prophet concerning God's promised restoration? To whom has he applied those words? Who are the one people of God under one head, their Davidic king? What is the one body to which they all belong, elect Jew and elect Gentile? And as many as the Lord will call to himself. What is That body. It is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see? It is the church. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Scripture (laughs) just could not be any plainer, could not be any clearer. Praise God. Perspicuity of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, drop down to verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, notice how Paul graciously said, says they're once. <laughs> you were once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in flesh by hands. You were called a bunch of uncircumcised Gentiles by the Jews. Right? Verse 12, that at the time you were without Christ, at that time when you were uncircumcised of heart, You were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, true Israel, and strangers from the covenants of, that word is articular in the Greek. It's the promise. Strangers from the covenants, plural, of the promise. What is that promise? The promise that God made to Abraham. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now, (laughs) a lot of grace. In the butts in the Bible, right? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both, like Jew and elect Gentile, if you will, one, and has broken down. He is, this is one body under one head. Do you see? He has broken down the middle wall of separation, that little wall, that little knee wall in the temple mount, on the Temple Mount that divided the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women. A Gentile could not pass that little knee wall without being killed. It was upon penalty of death that he went past that knee wall. Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, that middle wall of separation has been torn down. There is one body, one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing. Verse 15, middle wall of separation broken down, having abolished in his own flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, Thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him, the Lord Jesus Christ, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Simply can't think of any clearer way to make the same point. <coughs> Verse 19, now therefore, you, you Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but rather you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Those prophets, they're our prophets, okay? What they wrote was for our admonition. They're our prophets too. On the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, elect Jews and elect Gentiles, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We're not looking forward. We're not expecting a literal, physical, rebuilt brick and mortar temple anymore. Why? Why? Because Paul says, Peter says, we are the temple of the living God and it is being built living stone upon living stone as elect Jews and elect Gentiles rush into the kingdom through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are the temple. There's no temple in the New Jerusalem. Why? Because God and the Lamb are its temple. God will dwell among us. We will be his people. and He will be our God. We are a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. There are not... Two peoples of God. There is one body and there is one head and there is one Lord over all. We're not waiting for fulfillment, future fulfillment, certain promises to a national ethnic Israel. We're not waiting for that. God has promised a restoration of all his people, elect Jew and elect Gentile. The church is true Israel. Elect Jew and elect Gentile. Abraham, our brother in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Adam, our brother in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Moses, guy who built the ark, just joking. (laughs) Moses, (laughs) our brother in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament Israel, that assembly was called in the Septuagint, the church. The called out ones of God. The church is the true circumcision. The church, Galatians chapter 6, is the Israel of God. Listen, brothers and sisters, dispensationalism is an error. Dispensationalism is an error. And it impacts the way that we think about the Bible. It impacts the way that we read the Bible. Dispensationalism that chops up the people of God. There's the church and Israel. Two different plans, two different purposes, two different redemptive histories, two different redemptive destinations. Chopping up the scriptures like that has implications on the way that we read and understand our Bibles. And if we read the the, the Bible that way, we're going to find ourselves in error on a number of significant issues. Confusion over the church and Israel leads to dispensationalism, It leads to Roman Catholicism. It leads to Presbyterianism. And there are many who are our brothers and sisters who exist by the grace of God. They've been redeemed, and they are in those churches. But dispensationalism, that confusion is an error, and it's an error with serious implications. We need to know how to rightly understand, read and understand and embrace what New New Testament authors say about Old Testament passages. And we have a, a good example of this here with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. This has been the plan of God all along. Back in Romans chapter 9 then, hang in there with me. Paul then continues his case by arguing from the prophecy of Isaiah. In verse 27, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. God will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. So Paul makes his case for the inclusion of the Gentiles within the redemptive plans and purposes of God. And now having made his case for elect Gentiles as vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory, Paul now turns his attention back to Jews, back to the Jews. And he does so in reference to the prophecy of Isaiah, in which in those prophecies, God has determined to save a remnant. Verse 29. As Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, a remnant, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have become, we would have been made like Gomorrah. It's a prophecy, and it's a passage we'll consider next week in our time together or next time when the Lord allows. Suffice it to say in all this in Paul's argument, God is faithful to his word. God's promises are fulfilled. They are fulfilled to those who have turned from sin to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, Jew and Gentile alike. God has made his mercy available through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And without his mercy, you will be like Sodom. You will be made like Gomorrah. If you're here today and you've not turned from your sin to trust Jesus Christ, you are without God. You are like the nations of this earth. You are strangers from the covenant of Israel, strangers to the promise. And you are like Sodom. You will be made like Gomorrah. You will face judgment, the judgment of God upon you for your sin. What are you doing? Living life for yourself in futility against God who created you and sent his own son that you might have grace and peace. Turn from your sin. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. Turn that your sins may be blotted out. Jew and Gentile alike. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you, Abraham, all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith, faith in Jesus Christ, are blessed with salvation, with forgiveness of sins, In believing Abraham. It is those who place their faith in Jesus Christ who are counted as the seed of Abraham. It is the church of Jesus Christ who are Ami. (laughs) It is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ who are found to be Ruhamah. All praise, honor, and glory to the one who delights to show his mercy. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we praise you, our great God and deliverer, our rock and our refuge, the one who delights to show mercy. We praise you that you have shown mercy in and through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world to save sinners, that sinners might turn from their wicked ways, from the futility of their way, from the darkness of the way, their way, from the destruction that surely awaits them, and would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, trusting him alone for salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins, for the propitiation of your wrath, for the eternal glory of your name. I pray, God, that you would save many for the sake of our bridegroom, that you would, Lord, do so through the the gospel efforts of this church as your people preach the gospel as an enduring witness for Jesus Christ during the time of of her own tribulation and testing in this wilderness world in which we live. Glorify your own name. Glorify the name of our Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel. May it run swiftly to the praise of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.